I'll present to you today a bit more of a, a specific couple of use cases to give you an idea from the uh, industry perspective. Uh, so uh, I'm CEO and co-founder of Skyborne Technologies and I'm also a director of uh, another company called Athena Artificial Intelligence. Uh, so today I've been asked to present on the industry outlook, so I'll be representing these four companies today just to give you a broader perspective. So Skyborne Technologies itself does air robotics. You can see a few examples on the table here. Um, Cyborg Dynamics, uh, CEO Stephen Bornsteins and Army Reservist, uh, who was uh, asked to present here in my place, uh, but he's on leave. Uh, him and uh, BI5, they do ground robotics and the uh, common software that kind of links everything together is the Athena, uh, Athena Artificial Intelligence. So uh, Stephen Bornstein, being a reservist, knows how to uh, talk the right language to defense. I don't, so please forgive me as I'm going through that section of the slide. Um, so a little bit of background. Hypersonics was mentioned as a, a intense strategic interest for Army and other aspects of the ADF. That was where I actually came from. So I did a PhD in missile guidance in the hypersonics department at UQ and then ended up uh, doing a postdoctoral research position on this project here. So this project is called uh, the Scram Space One Hypersonic Flight Experiment. It went from 2009 to 2013. Our experiment was the, uh, the little blue thing on the end. The other uh, stages there are just rocket stages, uh, from one from Brazil, one from the US. Um, so this, I'll just give you a bit of an overview of what this experiment was meant to do. So th this is a simulation run by DST. That's the first stage separating. And soon you'll see the second stage separating. The reason it's spinning is to take out any thrust misalignment from the, the rockets, so it's essentially spin stabilized. It's a little nose cone popping off. So this thing's got a scramjet on board. The whole idea of this is to test air breathing engines at Mark 8 on re-entry. My job in this project was this period here where you're outside the atmosphere. So you basically skim low Earth orbit level at 330 kilometers. I had four cold gas thrusters which would fire in pairs to deliver roll pitch in your moments, to realign the thing so it's pointing the right friggin' way when it comes back <laughs> in the atmosphere. If you're off by a little bit, uh, the scramjet doesn't work. Around 27 kilometers altitude, the whole thing just melts due to air friction. So this is a little bit of a video of the campaign we did in Norway. So this is my reaction control system doing the reorientation. And that's the scramjet uh, hydrogen firing into the chamber. So that's called hardware in the loop, where you trick the flight computers into thinking that it's, uh, that it's doing what it's doing. If you can pause the video here. Um, so this is a big collaborative effort, getting this thing up and running. So the UQ component was only a small part of it. We made the payload. Um, the, the Germans bolted the rocket stack together for this Norway launch. So this is the second stage. It's a 
Improved Orion, it's part of a surface to air uh, missile system. All right, and this is the actual launch, taken from a couple of perspectives. So this was 2013. Here's everyone running for cover. <laughs> so this, this is a slow motion uh, of, of the launch itself. What you'll see is a little explosion uh, at the base of the rocket and a little piece falling off. You'll see it very soon. That bit there. So that's part of the rocket nozzle falling away. This is the whole rocket stack spinning around laterally, which flicked the, the scram space and the, the second stage rocket off. Second stage rocket avionics detected a separation. And you'll see the second stage rocket about to ignite. That's the first stage. So there's the second stage. Flying horizontally straight towards the town of Andenas. Um, the rocket, uh, the second stage in our payload ended up at the entrance to the harbour of this town, missing a boat by about 50 metres. So the second worst rocket disaster at this uh, Andoya test range in history, the worst one being uh, the Black Brant launch by the US in the uh, late early 90s, which was a weather experiment. It veered off course and started heading towards Russia. There was a comms breakdown between the rocket base and the Russians, and Yeltsin apparently had the nuclear suitcase open, ready to hit the retaliate button. You look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Um, anyway, that was a four-year program, four years of my life for this one, uh, one failure. And what it, what it really showed me is I really wanted to get into something where you can fail faster and iterate and get, get some technology up. So uh, I founded uh, Skyborne Technologies with a couple of guys. So what, what do we do? We make uh, smart aerial robotics for defense and securing, security customers, uh, mission-critical technology solutions, all of that marketing hype. Um, our flagship product is, is what you see in front of you here. So this is the Cerberus uh, tri-tilt rotor. We were founded in 2014. Uh, we've got 17 staff, soon to go on 20 as a result of a, an Innovation Hub grant coming through. Most of our company is R&D engineers. So a lot of companies in Australia who try to sell to the defence market are simple uh, resellers of overseas equipment. We do most stuff here ourselves. So we've got a small facility uh, in uh, Murray. Um, we've got a uh, weapons armory, so we're licensed to carry Category R systems like you see in front of you. Uh, we've got a, a, a milling machine, a mechanical workshop, electronics lab, essentially enough to do rapid prototyping in small quantities. And if we go to any production scale thing, we outsource that. Um, so I'll briefly run through the, the products that we've got and then I'll look at some of the other companies' products and, and that collaborative effort that we're going through. So this video introduces the Cerberus GL.
So this is the five shot grenade launcher we developed uh, as, as a result of a SIGP grant here in Australia. Once we found out that no one really makes grenade launchers in Australia. So as you can see, the principal uh, mechanism of aiming this weapon system is to tilt the whole airframe up and down which has lots of advantages over a gimbal. This is about the fourth generation of Cerberus that we've had quite a, a history with this thing since the company founding. This latest one allows you to pack it up and put it in a backpack. So we're still in the uh, dismounted combat soldier territory. You can see the uh, ground control station there with what we call open sites targeting. I'll, I'll cover that in a little bit. So right now we're around TRL-6. It's not waterproof yet, doesn't have hardened comms. Uh, we'll be developing a, a lot over time. So th this was the last time we fired in the US um, so that was um, as part of the AWE uh, Army experiments for the US Army. It was really fantastic over there. We rocked up at the test range and they said, here's the keys to the test range, here's a bucket of ammunition, go nuts. And we haven't fired since because of the regulatory environment in Australia, which is a bit of a shame, but we're working on it. Um, so it, you've seen the main features in the video. Um, it, it's all about uh, precision strike at the dismounted combat level. Um, I've seen plenty of videos uh, on YouTube of uh, US soldiers under fire in Afghanistan. I know Afghanistan's wrapping up and we're moving on from that. A few years ago, uh, and they're just sitting around waiting for the gun line or waiting for fast jet support. If they had a system like this, they could go and retaliate or at least get out of danger. So it's really about protecting the soldiers, letting robots do the heavy lifting. Rather than having to aim a gun, you're aiming through a screen. And it, it, it's still at that tactical level. What's great about the, uh, the Havoc launcher that, that we like is that it's a chamber select in flight. So you can load up different round types and choose the most appropriate one for the mission. So non-lethal rounds, flashbangs, that sort of thing, smoke for target designation or high explosive. So just a, a few specs on it. It's about 10 kilograms unarmed with a 20 or 30 minute endurance depending on how many rounds you put in. Uh, it's not very competitive on the endurance side of things compared to some ISR assets you might be useful. Uh, but those ISR assets don't have to carry a three kilogram weapon system. So this is, uh, and uh, the, the, the futurist presentation earlier, is Anders still here? I'm not sure. Um, but what he showed that, that Slaughterbot video uh, is quite unrealistic right now with current technology due to these considerations of uh, endurance, energy density and batteries, etc., which Michael Milford uh, touched on earlier. So it's got a laser rangefinder for uh, the targeting fire control system, uh, as well as your standard EOIR. So why this platform? So there's a few advantages with this style of thing. Um, the first you've seen is the tilt mode, the ability to aim the weapon system up and down, as opposed to using a gimbal. 
Um, it, who's familiar with the uh, EOS remote weapon station? Yeah, a few people have, have seen it or used it. The size of the gimbal mechanism for the size of the weapon is probably three or four times bigger. If you apply the same principles to something like this 40 millimeter launcher, your drone ends up around 40 to 80 kilograms or so. Um, what's great about this is that we line up the firing axis with the vehicle, means recall uh, doesn't have big attitude disturbances to it, it just pushes the vehicle back and it makes the whole thing a hell of a lot lighter. Um, tricopters are more efficient than quad hex octocopters in hover uh, by about five or six percent, not much. A helicopter with a single large rotor is the best system for hover, which is why the Black Hornet Nano UAS is such a, an amazing platform. You won't be able to get a quadcopter with the same endurance for the same size and weight. And finally, we have our own uh, prop proprietary flight computer and controller. So most companies and, and teams grab an Argypilot or a Pixhawk or something off the shelf. Uh, we've actually written the whole operating system and everything from scratch. And when you talk about sovereign capability, that becomes quite important. Um, so you would have seen the AeroVironment Switchblade. This is where we kind of fit in the market against those sort of systems. Uh, there's a number of advantages this kind of multi-shot reusable drone has, and I'll go through five of them. The first is cost, uh, where orders of magnitude lower cost per shot. So an HE grenade round might be 100 bucks. Uh, an air environment switchblade's between 100 and 150 grand per shot. So we're orders of magnitude cheaper. Since we're multi-shot, you can engage the target, do ISR, battle damage assessment, with the same asset that delivered the effect, and then have another go straight away. With these uh, loitering munitions, you can't do that. You've got to have another asset in the sky. Speed of effector, that's kind of obvious. You shoot something fast, you might be able to hit a moving target compared to a loitering munition. I've mentioned the operational flexibility. Um, I'll touch on the modular variant of this later, but even with the five-shot grenade launch, you can load up those different round types and do different missions. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, FNP-90s on order, see how they work out. We've got some smart munitions, I'll cover that later. Uh, and we've also uh, done a 12-gauge variant for the UK MOD for urban operations. So with the same platform, you can load up lots of different things and it, it's very versatile. Uh, and finally, the US Army uh, had a lot of complaints about the switchblade in that when you're operating in urban environments, it just doesn't have the turn radius, the ability to keep track of targets. So very often they'd lose their target through an alleyway or something and just veer the thing off and, and crash it in the desert. Um, what we tried to do with this system is combine the uh, things that soldiers are familiar with. Uh, some of you might have done DJI Phantom training, just standard drone training. Um, we've replicated the controls of that. Instead of being able to take a picture at any grid reference within, say, a three-kilometer radius, our objective is to enable you to deliver an effect within that same radius. And we also combine uh, something you're also familiar with, so that's your, your standard point-and-click interface with the rifle. So what we've done is uh, put our aiming on the right-hand side, 
So you aim with the right hand and arm and fire with the left hand. So we get some criticism about the size of this controller, but I want to tell you a story. You know, this integrated S9 device that flips down from your webbing has its advantages. Uh, but we took this thing out in the field in the US. We didn't have this controller. A speck of rain landed on the arm button and had another speck of rain landed on the fire button, that thing would have just discharged because of the touch-sensitive nature of the touchpad. So we've made those buttons physical buttons. So we don't mind what ground control station we end up using as long as you've got a physical arm and fire button to avoid those kind of mistakes. Uh, so this is, the, this is the Cerberus MI concept. So in addition to the grenade launcher style of thing, uh, you've got all these other options. So the, uh, uh, you probably can't see the writing too well. At the top left, there's the signals dispatch carrier. So uh, going back to the old carrier pigeon days, putting an encrypted hard drive on board and sending uh, sensitive information around the battlefield autonomously. It's a little bit more expensive than a, p a pigeon, probably less reliable too. Um, CBRN sensors, electronic warfare sensors, uh, you know how contested this space is going to be. Uh, the guys up in Townsville wanted the M72 law on board, so we'll see if that, that stays around. Uh, during the, our contract negotiations, we're not sure. Uh, the US Marine Corps wanted a laser designator on this so that they didn't have to put their Apaches in, in the way of harm. They could just send up an autonomous vehicle. Um, and finally, I'll round off the Cerberus aspect of this presentation with the uh, latest test firings. This was uh, actually this week for the UK MOD. So this is a 10-shot 12-gauge uh, undergoing a weapon system integration qualification. The other main system we're developing at Skyborne is the Gannet Glide Drone. So this one here. This was uh, sponsored by the Dismounted Combat Program. Essentially two of these um, store underneath the, the Cerberus and when it gets deployed, uh, flicks the wings out and the uh, elevators and basically cruises into target. So that's essentially a, a miniature cruise missile, again at the Dismounted Combat level, really allowing you to assemble that combat mass together. And this system came about due to feedback about the grenade launcher's range. Uh, to be effective with the grenade launcher, you've got to be within, say, 50 to 150 metres of the target. And if you're that close, you can be seen or detected acoustically by radar, by uh, electronic detections. Um, you really want that extra standoff distance in certain circumstances. So the idea is uh, that you, you can drop this uh, from, say, a few kilometres away and still hit the target. Uh, it's designed to operate in two different mechanisms. One is a very RF active system, so the thing's spamming out RF information and uh, communicating with other members of its swarm, and so you can uh, have your simultaneous strike. Uh, the other mechanism of employment is a very RF silent mode, so this is uh, you know, you may not have GPS, you may not have good comms. So we'd have a very high-grade IMU on board so that it can hold itself together over that couple of minutes of flight. 
Uh, it's also designed to uh, do a terminal effect dive. So it'll fold the wings back and fire straight down on top of a target. Uh, the warhead itself, this is a, a replica, obviously. This is uh, made by DST down in Adelaide. 600 gram with a, a shape charge in the end or explosively formed projectile. So that can get through about 60 mils of steel. So it's not a tank killer, but uh, it should be able to hit, uh, do some damage. Um, this gives you some idea of the range of, of the strike. So if you're up uh, 200 metres with a 10 to, 10 to 1 glide ratio, you should be able to hit 1.5 k's downrange or so. So the first flight test for this likely in uh, September. So it's very low TRL compared to the Cerberus. Uh, and finally, I'll just finish up the Skyborne slides with a couple of uh, future concepts. So this was done by our, by our graphic artist. This is kind of a, a delivery mechanism for long range, multiple swarming strikes. Um, this is the uh, Cerberus Hunter Killer. So this is a smaller scale than this platform, but it's designed for uh, a counter UAS. So n none of these things we're working on, these are just concepts we're floating around to give you an idea of the kind of technology horizon. So the idea behind this is not to optimize for endurance, it's to optimize for speed and agility. So you've got completely different designer propellers and you probably have a, a, a single shot 12 gauge to, to uh, take out the other drone. And then, of course, uh, everyone wants more capability, more endurance. So this concept is simply around scaling things up. So you might have uh, four M72s or eight glide bombs or, or something like that, effectively a gunship at the uh, company or battalion level or something like that. So it's no longer man packable. There's plenty of competition in this space, so we may not head down that path, but uh, that's just throwing some, some concepts around. Uh, and then, of course, so th this was floated a few years ago um, as a, a Cerberus recon. So you, you replace the front landing gear with a set of robotic claws and some uh, clever machine vision from folks like Michael down the front here, and uh, to be able to grip onto tree branches and, and fences. So you've effectively got a system that can sit there and perform ISR over a day instead of limited to 30 or 40 minutes endurance. Uh, if you put a, an effector on that, a sniper system or a, a, a something like a P90, you've effectively got a rapidly deployable remote weapon station. Uh, so think about all the potential uses that might have in uh, you know, denying lines of retreat and that sort of thing. Um, all right, uh, if, is there any questions on the Skyborne side of things before I jump into the presentations on, on the other systems? Yes. I'm just wondering if it looks like it's really operator stabilised Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, right now you can kind of do your standard waypoint kind of autonomous. It's got auto landing. I think you've still got to take off yourself, uh, but that's not a technical issue. Um, in terms of automatically locking on, that's in our pipeline. So when I go through the AI presentation, so that we can do some detections on the edge can potentially slew the weapon system to target, but then the human will always have the final, final say in it. All right, so this isn't my product, so I'll, I'll be fairly brief. This is uh, the Warfighter UGV. Uh, BIA-5, uh, uh, 
is a, founded from the, the technical guys at CERT, the Police Rapid Response. So they put together this UGV to, to kind of barge through doors in hostage situations and that sort of thing. Uh, and it, it, it's been in action. So, you know, you've got the terrorist there with a hostage, he's armed, you barge one of these things through the door, they don't even know what to do. It's like, okay, I surrender. And that's happened a couple of times. So really amazing use of this, uh, these robotic platforms. Um, Cyborg Dynamics Engineering are essentially modifying that for uh, ADF use. So here are some of the potential configurations. You've got the assault configuration with the EOS weapon gimbal, CASAVAC, logistics carry, and then this uh, combined ISR concept. So uh, just go and plant it there for days on end, gathering ISR. And you can also put a, a drone on it as well. So this system's been tested. I think it's fired 50 cal uh, out in the desert. So it's a, around a 500 kilogram thing. I suppose the important parts uh, for you are the, uh, the transportation. So you can fit two in an MRH-90 or uh, four, or sorry, 12 in a Chinook. And uh, there's a paper study being done on incorporating the Spike LR2 on this. So this is a really small platform. It's you know, maybe just over a metre long and less than a metre wide. If you can take out two main battle tanks with, with one tiny little system that's a fraction of the cost, um, I think it was brought up earlier, will the main battle tank be a mainstay in, in the future of warfare? Perhaps not with systems like this. The great part about unmanned systems, if you think about the history of, of vehicles, aeroplanes and tanks, you've always got to fit a person inside it, and that dictates the minimum size. But you look at the size of what's needed for a lethal effect to counter such things, it's uh, orders of magnitude smaller. So th this is what we're kind of facing as we, we go into the future. Uh, again, uh, some more on the, uh, the ISR asset. So this system here we're working on now, uh, your standard EOIR, but also uh, incorporating acoustic sensors, so you can do some shot detection algorithms and that sort of thing. Uh, and this is the, uh, the Galaxy S9 concept that you, you might be uh, familiar with. Everyone's kind of moving towards this, this common ground control architecture, that sort of thing. So again, this will work for the servers. You just need a separate controller with the arm and fire button. Uh, so these are some of the features of this UGV. Some of them are in place now. This is, this is an active Defence Innovation Hub grant. Uh, some of those are in, in place now. You've got a, a driver camera. Uh, then you've also got a number of autonomous modes. So drive it around on your own, have a bit of fun, or plot waypoints, uh, follow me mode, or you can uh, put it in a patrol pattern. And the topographical map allows you to, to uh, do that, that planning. All right, so in the last uh, 10 minutes or so, I'll uh, discuss Athena Artificial Intelligence. Um, what this system does is uh, act as a software as a service type system to enable various robotic platforms and other elements of fires uh, to intelligently talk to one another. And the main emphasis behind this system is to reduce sensor-to-shooter times in a legal and ethical manner. So 
any ISR feed, essentially, from a drone, uh, either at the, the small, medium, or the strategic asset level, can be fed into the Athena AI system. And here's some example of compute hardware in the bottom left there. You've got little Jetson uh, nano GPUs in the little one. That, so that's designed for soldier mount or vehicle mount. Then you've got the compute heavy unit, which is much more powerful GPUs. You can put in a server rack at the, uh, the forward operating base. It's also designed to be uh, integrated into the battle management system. So whatever that happens to be, we're not pretending to want to be a battle management system, but we're aiming to be a plug-in to whatever that, that turns out to be. So what the hell does it do? Well, it does those five things you can see underneath. So uh, Michael Milford gave a great presentation on uh, vision AI. So it does a fair bit of vision AI to recognize defense objects of interest. So that's object categorization. It does this under a legal and ethical framework. So you load in your laws of armed conflict and your ethical considerations. And it does advanced blast modeling, and allows a tactical decision support. And then those top four are really the, uh, the tactical in real time aspects of this system. Then the geospatial terrain analysis is really a pre-planning or pre-mission system. So this is what the vision AI does. Uh, so in the top right there, you can see some uh, object detections. Uh, so it's detecting soldiers. Uh, we'll use a two-stage AI system. The first stage detects big objects from your large ISR feed. Is it a military vehicle? Is it a person, essentially? Once those are detected, the cropped images are sent to a, sent to a second layer, which divulges more information about it. Is that person armed? What sort of vehicle is it? Then the decision support, you preload in your uh, laws of armed conflict, drone maximum altitude, no fly areas, no go areas, and it can uh, do some decision support around that. What you see there is the uh, uh, effective casualty radius in the green circle on the bottom right there. Um, we've done some uh, optimization of the user interface. So this might be a good, good time to talk about the fact that, okay, you, you're an operator, you're looking at a screen. Um, if you get spammed with all these detections, oh, this is a soldier, this is whatever, you're just going to be operator overload. You're going to be like, I don't care about this, system. I'm just going to turn it off. One of the critical aspects of this program is to determine whether this actually saves the operator time and provides better decision making or better decisions are made after having used this. So that's the final uh, kind of chapter of this development cycle to go through those user trials and make sure the system actually works. Um, one thing uh, that Michael also mentioned was the uh, data that feeds in. When we first started this program, we were labeling 2,000 images by hand in a week very tedious work, effectively hiring like grade 12 work experience students to do that. Um, and we very quickly moved on to synthetic data generation. So the problem with using real data, and we collected that ourselves with, with phantom drones and that sort of thing, running around with gel blasters, getting the police called on you because you look like hooligans. Um, <laughs> We went from that to, to this uh, system where we use synthetic AI. So we use the Unreal 4 gaming engine to generate images 
different lighting conditions, different occlusions, to make sure that the AI uh, resultant neural network is balanced. So now we label 10,000 per day, essentially overnight. And that's really important when you uh, start to consider things like um, mission tactical networks. So let's say you're doing an operation, the enemy's now using uh, a brand new vehicle type or a brand new weapon system you've never seen before. You need the ability to rapidly train the AI system and redeploy it. So that's where this synthetic data uh, really comes in handy. Um, so we've, to date we've trained 50 uh, classes or so. Uh, so it's a multi-layered neural network. We add some tracking algorithms so that, uh, to, to give you an example, the, uh, the GPU on board here can process the AI at about five frames per second. If there's too much stuff going on, uh, it slows down even more. So what you need to do is be able to track those detections in between AI detections. Um, so we add some tracking in. Uh, we've done some training on, in the electro-optical spectrum, low light and thermal. So you can see some thermal uh, AI training. It's picking up the weapon as well as the person and uh, also pose detection. So where does pose detection come into this? So with the blast effects modeling, uh, we can get accurate casualty estimations. So if someone's in prone position as opposed to standing, they're presenting less surface area to the potential frag blast and the, uh, the percentage of casualty will go down. So that really takes things to the next level. That's done in real time. You're not sitting there with like a, a protractor or a slide rule. I don't know how you do it. I didn't go through the... Uh, but that's happening in real time. Again, shortening that sensor to shooter time. Uh, one of the pre-planning mission uh, tasks you'll do with this system is uh, load up your attack guidance matrix and your high-value targets so that when you go out on the mission, you've got this ISR feed, you should automatically be able to select the right fires system, whether it's a 40 mil or a 155 from the gun line, uh, to queue onto target. So you should be all automatically produce uh, fire missions and contact reports and situation reports rather than filling them out manually. Uh, as you, uh, say, zoom out on the topographical map, if you've detected a couple of, uh, let's say, five, six individual soldiers, uh, it will automatically relabel that as a squad rather than have all the detections pop up. So to try and give you the, the breadth of what this system is capable of doing, and it's not all there right now. This is under development, but that, this is where we're, we're headed for. So it's, it's quite a task. Um, as I've mentioned, the, the high-fidelity uh, blast modeling. So we uh, run the trajectories from your fire tables. 155, or if it's a guided weapon, we just take the CEP of the guided weapon and load that up. Um, what we're aiming to do in the future is to be able to uh, classify what a building is likely to be made of, so that we know with a bit more certainty what the blast effect is going to be. If it's concrete, it won't get through. If it's made of wood, it might get through. So th this is the sort of thing you can kind of do in real time, theoretically. So this is quite powerful. What you see in the top right-hand corner there is also uh, an idea of if you've got someone behind a, a ridge or something, can your trajectory-based weapon actually get there? 
Uh, this gives you an idea of the, the tactical kind of view and the sort of detections. Uh, Michael mentioned earlier about reporting 100% perfect AI. AI uh, vision detections are a statistical thing. If anything ever says 100%, it's wrong. So this is the kind of uh, confidence interval you can, can expect. Um, and then finally, this is the uh, geospatial AI. So what this does, uh, you essentially load up a, a 3D point cloud. It might be an open source data set at 20 or 30 meters resolution to start with. You might need more fidelity. Grab whatever data set you can from a, an ISR asset with a laser scanner or, or wherever you get your data from. Uh, grab the satellite vision of that and do a, a segmentation anal analysis. Um, so what that looks like is this. So there's your, your satellite data in the uh, top left of that figure. Uh, you, you do your AI detections on buildings, roads, water, etc., and you can do the segmentation analysis. That allows you to then do clever route planning for autonomous vehicles such as UGVs. Um, so that, that's a very short version of Athena AI and, and the capabilities of this kind of consortium that all, all hangs out with us. So I hope you've enjoyed the presentation. Cheers. Yeah, so it, it really depends on, uh, on what you want. So right now we're just using 2.4 gig encrypted comms, uh, and then the ground control station, in the example we gave of the Hum-T demo, uh, just operated over Wi-Fi to a central server to do the processing. Um, we're trying to be comms agnostic, so whatever comms are being used, we'll try and adapt into that as long as we've got the bandwidth to do it.